Okay, welcome everyone to the Earthquake Science Seminar for February 16th. Um, so just as a reminder, um, please uh, mute your microphones and uh, turn off your cameras so we can preserve bandwidth as our speakers from France today. Um, if you need live captioning, um, you can click the, the more button on the top of your menu and then choose turn on live captions. Um, so we have a few announcements. Uh, Monday is President's Day, so you don't need to come to work that day. Um, our next All Hands seminar is going to be on uh, next Thursday, the 24th at 11 a.m. Uh, that'll be over Teams. And then uh, next week, we're going to have our seminar from Joshua Crozier from uh, CVO. He's going to be talking about uh, long period seismic events um, from Kilauea. Um, so today's speaker is Laura pinzon Rincon from uh, University uh, Alp, uh, Grenoble Alps, um, which is probably the best place to do uh, ambient noise research in the world, um, which is what she does. Um, so if you have questions for Laura, feel free to type them in the chat, um, or at the end, you can raise your hand um, and then ask a question over video, or if you want, we can just, uh, Leia and I can uh, ask it for you. Um, so Leia's gonna do the introduction, so I'll hand it over to her. Hello, um, as Tim already said, today we're going to hear from Lara Pinzon-Rincon, who is Colombian, and she's studying in France, where she just received her PhD, um, working on ambient noise and imaging. And um, today she'll be telling us about train traffic as a seismic noise source for imaging the shallow crust with seismic interferometry. So take it away, Lara. Thank you. Oh, good morning to you, uh, to everybody. And thank you for the invitation. So just say I'm going to talk about how to to use trends for seismic interferometry. So I'm going to begin in to talk about with the the motivation and the reason for studying trends in seismology. Uh, then I will present the methodology of how to use these trends, and I will finish by presenting one application for seismic imaging, and. If I have no time, I will also present another application in monitoring. Well, let's see if I have no time. So one of the main questions in her science is to, to understand the structure of the hair. To, um, so what we do in seismologists, what seismologists do is that we will listen this the vibration of the ground. And what is similar to what is done in medical imaging we generate, we create some image from these vibrations uh, to, for different purposes. So that helps us to understand first the structure at the different scales, to understand the, the geodynamics, to localize natural resources and reservoirs, to help to understand natural hazards amongst other, other applications. But the question is, what are these vibrations? What is this vibration that seismologists will listen? There are several kinds. One is the what we call active sources that are human-made explosions, for example, explosion of uh, that can be used. Another source that we can use, natural one, is the earthquakes, and the other one is the seismic noise. That is the constant background noise that is generating in the herd. And the technique that uses background vibration called passive seismic interferometry 
and what it, how it works that when we have two seismic stations, if we have noise everywhere, we can extract from this noise some information about the medium between these two stations. So if I can, if I translate that from a mathematical point of view, what we can say that if we cross correlate the seismic record between one sensor at this position A and the second one in this position B, we're going to retrieve a, what we call a cross correlation function between A and B, the positive part, and B and C. And if we are under some hypothesis, we can say that we converge to the Grange function. That is the impulsive response of the medium. But what are the, the situation that we need to really retrieve the Grange functions? First, we need the homogeneous distributions of sources of the noise sources. But actually, that is really rare in nature. So what we do practically is that we're going to stack over long uh, time series and we're going to converge, we're going to say that we're going to converge to this Grange function. And we're going to use this Grange function, this wave that arrived, to do this image, to have some image or some information about our structure. But what is in this vibration? Yeah, we have this background noise, but what generates this background noise? And what it is, so it's like that that it looks like. That is the how the how the noise, uh, the different mechanisms generate noise. And what is really important, we have to keep in mind here. We have the frequency and the decibels. Is that this is true everywhere in the surface in the surface of the heart. So we're going to have a long period the mechanism generate noise is the interaction between the atmosphere and the ocean. Then an intermediary um, frequency you're going to have what we call the micro seismic. There is interaction with, between the ocean and the bottom of the, of the ocean. And then for the really short, short periods, what generate noise is what we call cultural noise. There is all the noise that is generated by human activity. And for the last um, 20 years, we used this noise generated by the ocean to create image of the hair at differences, mainly a crystal scale. Here we have the first tomography done by uh, uh, passive seismic interferometry by Shapiro in Long Beach, and the second one in one uh, one tomography in in, in in Europe. So what happened with these frequencies that with this noise that is mainly low frequency, we generate surface waves that are really good to do this imaging. But if we want to go for another scale, for a shorter scale, a small one, we need to go with shorter periods with higher frequencies. And here 
the sources of noise are local and begin to be more challenging. I'm going to explain later why. But we're still having some, some studies that show that it's possible to use this noise to do imaging. So for surface waves in this example, by Gmail, and in the first and in the only body wave uh, tomography done with body waves with um, seismic noise by Nakata. Yeah. So what what happened when we move to this part of the of the noise when we are really high frequency? It's interesting because we can have we can image really small structures. We're going to have a higher resolution, we're going to have both surface and body waves, but the sources of noise here are local. There are scriptural noise and some natural local uh, sources, or the interaction between the tree on the ground or the river. And why that is not good, to remember the second slide that I showed you, is because to do seismic interferometry, we need to have a homogeneous source distribution, and where it's not the case, as with these high frequency sources, we cannot retrieve anymore the Green's function. We cannot apply the standard method that that being applied for surface wave and and lower frequencies, because we need all this distribution. But what is what can really help us is this. A space, this location that we call stationary phase zone, there are the regions in which, for which we can still retrieving the Green's function, even if we don't have a uniform distribution, but if we have only sources in these regions. And what is even better, we don't need to have sources in both stationary phase zones, but only in one. So in this case, if we only have sources here, we can retrieve the Green's function between A and B. And what I'm going to explain to you today and what I'm going to present is what happens if we use trends to do this, to do the interferometry. So I'm going to begin by presenting you why trends are good sources, why we should use trends and not other kind of uh, sources. Then I am going to propose the methodology that uh, that we develop for trans seismic signals, and then I'm going to show you two different applications. One for imaging, in which I'm going to detail each step, and if I have enough time, I will also present some monitoring results using trend signals. So let's go for the first one, why trends are good sources. Because they are energetic, that is the main, the main reason. So here, so we can see from really far. So here we have one example when we have the amplitude of the seismic records and the distance from the railway. And what we see is that it's possible to detect trends up to and 90 kilometers from the railway. That means that the train generates enough energy to be detected really far from the source. And some studies show that the energy produced by fade trains in, for example, in California, is equivalent to an earthquake of magnitude one. 
And but what is the signal from a small logical point of view? What how they are? Here we have two examples. So it's at an emergent tremor-like signal that cut that is lasting from few seconds, if it's for a small friend, and can go up to 10 of the minutes, as in this case. Trends also have a really particular spectral signature that we can see here in both examples, that we have these spectral lines that, can, that also oscillate and that create a really broadband high frequency signals. That is what we we are looking for, because we need high frequency sources, really energetic, that can be used to improve the imaging or to image smaller structures. And they can also was they were observed at different distance. So we have a really good um, candidate we can say to 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 use for. Um, passive seismic interferometry, and why use interferometry? Because we can see that these these signals are emergent signals, so there is not a like an earthquake when we have the arable. But before going and trying to analyze this, we wanted to understand why this signal is this characteristic, why we have this emergent tremor, why we have these spectral lines. And to do so, um, we propose a modeling uh, based on the geometry of the of the trend. So there are two many important things in the geometry. The first one is the wagon length, and the other one the distance between the sleepers. And after some modeling, we realize that the um, the mechanism that control the um, the, se the seismic signature of trends are characterized by two different different frequencies. The first one, it's depending on the velocity of the trend and the length of the wagon, and the second one is depending on the distance between of this sleeper, and the interaction of these two frequency create this broadband. Um, signal that also modulate with the velocity. So when we have, for example, here, we increase the velocity, we're going to modulate and here decrease and create broadband signals that can be used for high frequency body wave imaging or monitoring. Um, we can also extract surface waves, high frequency surface waves from this kind of signal. And what is important to keep in mind at this point is that when we have really big, long, heavy, and fast trends that are passing nearby, they're going to generate more more noise. And I think that we all know that because we were near to the railway and we see these big trends. We can feel it when we are just a passenger train; we feel it less. But we can also we also understood what are the mechanisms that control control this and when we saw these variations so, sometimes. And after understanding the trends from a seismological point of view, we want to use it as a source. 
So what do we see is that trends are all similar. I mean, by modeling, but also by observation, we have these tremor signals that are all similar between trends, that they are persistent. Trends are passing all the time, several times per day. We don't need to spend money or look for them. They are available. They are passing several times. These are repeatable source that will produce high frequency noise. So we have a really good source, but we cannot use it as a quick earthquake. We have no the P and S wave that are going to arrive. We cannot use it as in a earthquake tomography because maybe it's a moving source that generates this tremor. So because we don't have these these phases that are observable, we have to use the interferometry to extract some information that could be used for imaging or monitoring. And what is done in general in, seismic, in standard seismic noise interferometry that we're going to take just the seismic noise, we're going to cross-correlate to the seismic noise to the station, going to stack over a duration, long duration, and then we're going to use the cross-correlation function. Yeah. But we are not in this case. We're going to go a step forward and inside the seismic noise, we're going to use only the train signals that we saw that there were they had a really good um, qualities to um, to improve what we have to go higher frequency. But we cannot use this standard approach anymore because it's a different case. We are not, we don't have this homogeneous distribution. So we um, propose this different approach that is based in five different steps. So first we're going to go for the source detection and characterization. So it's what I showed you before to understand by example, by modeling the trends. We're going to detect the trends. Then we're going to only cross correlate time windows during the train signal, and we're going to just use stations that are in the stationary phase and for this uh, time window. Then we're going to compute the cross correlation. And what is good one more time is that we can stack because we have several trends passing. So here we have an example. Oh, we have a red well and two position red and blue. So we can see the selected uh, station that are going to be used for the cross correlation. And what we can imagine is that each day several trends are passing by this same position. So we can stack all this cross correlation. And at the end, we're going to, we're going to have this Green's function or with this cross correlation function that is close enough to the Green's function that we can use for imaging or monitoring applications. So now I'm going to, to go in the details for each step of this um, workflow for one case for imaging in, ma in, a mar in Marathon Deposit in Ontario, Canada. So first, just talk about the the marathon site. So 
is a um, exploration blog in the north of the um, Super Lake in Canada, in Ontario. And in this region, we have a high concentration of platinum group metals that are hosted in in this Gabriel structure. And we don't know the structure in depth. So the idea here is to provide some information about the geometry, the thickness, the depth of the, of the intrusion and the contact between this intrusion and the other um, geological structures. So to do so, we um, deploy um, around 1,000 geophones in, in these areas, we see here for, with the gray dots, and we record continuous data during 30 days. Uh, so as you can see here, we have the rail way that is just passing next to the array. And more important, this railway is a main railway in Canada that because connect both coasts and they are only fake trains passing that are really big up to four kilometers. Here we have a, a Google Earth picture and this train, this one is each line's wagon is around uh, four kilometers long and they are really heavy. And if you remember just before I told you that this the B long and heavy trains produce a lot of noise. So we are in a in a really good configuration. And now let's see the, the data. So here we have the temper the, the spectrogram of one day of data, the spectrum and the temporal trace of our of one day of data data. And we see this really energetic variables. So if we zoom in, what we see is that we can see this tremor, this signal, these trends that generate really high frequency. If we zoom again and we change the frequency, what we realize is that we have trends generating energy up to 40 hertz, really broad by signals because this oscillation, this variation of the velocity, mainly because the train is turning, going to generate a lot of energy and broadband energy that can also be related with these two frequencies that modeling tells us that we're going to see. So we are mainly happy. We found the trains, really high frequency energy. So this is what we were expecting. Now we have to create catalogs for these trends. But the problem is that the timetables were not uh, available for security reasons. So what we do is what we are used to do, applying uh, seismology. So we're going to detect trends as we detect other kind of sources. So we use a method called covariance matrix that just allow us, some method that just allow us to um, detect coherent energy in the, array, in the array and this method and by using it, we detect around 180 trends passing uh, during the 30, 30 days. And then we beamform one minute window of the data. 
and we back project this into the railway. And by doing so, we localize in time and in the space the train. So what you see here, the red cross is the um, the train moving, localization of the train, and here you have the beam forming with respect of, with the for the for with the beam forming that we use for localize the, the, the train. So here we did the, the first step. We analyzed the the source. We realized that it was uh, as expected by modeling. And and then we create a catalog of uh, the train and we localize it by in time and in space every minute. So well, let's move to the second step. There is the time window selection and the station parcelation. So we use this one minute window and we for each location we just select the station pair for which the train was in the stationary phase one. So here we have six beam formings that show that we have six trains that are passing by the same position, the railway is expected, and that generates, that illuminates the same way our array for two different positions. And what we're going to do is just to select the station here, stationary in the stationary phase then, for each position of the train, for all trends, and we're going to compute the cross correlation of these stations. So by doing this selection, we're going to decrease the number of cross correlations that we compute. So just to give you an idea, we only kept, we only compute, we only kept 5.7% uh, of the total cross correlation that we call compute. Um, and then we, we stack, and what is, sorry, what is really good here is that I'm trying to, sorry, I'm trying to, ah, wait, yeah, perfect, hide here. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm having problems just to Join the video. I don't know if you see it, but if time, okay, just continue like that. So what we're going to do, I'm going to see here, is one position of the trend, and in red is the virtual source, and in blue we're going to have all the possible at uh, the station that were used. I try it once again. And then if the train move, we're going to illuminate different station pairs. And at the end, there is one example for this virtual source going to use all, we're going to use this station. We realize that there is a lack of illumination in this direction because of the position of the railroad. And then we can stack all the trains that are in the same position. And because just so before that we have several trains passing per day, we can take advantage of this and just stack all these trends. Now we go for the analysis of the data. 
So what I'm going to do first is to use this high frequency surface wave to do some imaging. I'm going to show you what I did, and then I'm going to compare with a more standard approach. So over the 180 trains that passed, I only selected moments where the trains were, when only one single train was passing, and I stacked only trains that were traveling the same direction to reduce the, um, the bias that could be added because of the different propagation paths. And here, for example, we have one virtual um, source, the gather, one virtual source gather, and we see the propagation of the surface wave. Here we have this, also the snapshots of the propagation. What we see is that we have a clear propagation around the array using only 60 trends and one minute window. So it's really few data compared with more standard approach. And then what we applied was the Iconotomography, there is a standard method that use the fact that the um, slowness is equal to the gradient, the spatial gradient of the travel time. And without going into the details, what I did was to pick the travel times for each virtual source. Then I'm going to interpolate this travel time, compute the gradient, and this gives me the slowness. And if I take the inverse of the slowness, I'm going to have the velocity. And if I do the same thing for all the virtual sources in the array, I can have a final map. But before having this final map, I'm going to do some quality control to, to reject all the outliers because we have some uh, edges effects. So I'm going to use the standard deviation and the number of its stack data to reject some some outliers and then what I can and I do that for each frequency and what I can have at the end is phase velocity maps for each frequency and we begin to see some anomalies of ha some um, high velocity anomaly that could be related to the Gabbro. But now I'm in frequency, I'm to pass to depth. What I did is a depth inversion. So I use this phase velocity maps for different frequency from 1.5 hertz to 9.5 hertz. And I use another neighbor and the neighborhood algorithm inversion, probabilistic inversion at each point. That is this and the give me this green data in blue you have the, the dispersion curve and what and what happened here is that um that we are in marathon we have really low contrast in the velocity so i add a linearized inversion to try to fit as much as i could on the the data and by doing so i create a velocity model and generate a velocity model for each point of the grid, I did it for all of them that give me a velocity, a velocity model, a 3D short velocity model that allows us to, to have some ideas about this Gabor intrusion. We can see that the dipping angle is really important at the beginning and then go, the dipping angle decrease. We also saw that it 
was in a homogeneous unit, but we have also um, some anomalies inside the GABRO. We could like, localize the, um, the contact between the GABRO and the other structures, only using train signals and using less data as if we were using normal trust correlation. But why why do all these things? Why continue doing uh, all this cross correlation um, of train signals? For several reasons. First, because we increase the quality of the data. So if you look here, we have the comparison because between blind correlation, the standard approach. Why I call it blind is because we cross correlate blindly without thinking about the source, and only train cross correlation. And what we see first is that we have increase the, the quality of, of the data. We have a better source characterization. So if we wanted to invert jointly source and, and the medium, it's better when you really know the source. Second, we have high frequency data. So we have also body waves that we can see here. Even if they were more challenging to use, it has still been um, good, uh, a good option. We have less computational time because we don't use all the data. The problem is that we depend on the, of the localization of the railway. So we're going to have less illumination. We region this lack of, uh, of coverage that I just showed you, showed you before. And what happened with, uh, with the data, with the inversion? We see that because of the quality of the data is less Less good is going to be easier to see the contrast and to localize the some structures by using a train cross correlation. We have a higher resolution, so we're going to have better image at the at the end. However, we can still see that both both uh, um, maps are self consistent. That also means that we are our method. Is, is good. We are uh, we are really imaging something. We are not creating some data. So I'm going to give you some perspective. The first one about the the body wave. So this has been like a bit a question for us. Is what is the body? We see this body wave, but what we can really use it. We don't know if it's a direct for the S wave as well, a direct or a refracted body wave. We do. We are doing some modeling, but we will need more than that. Even if we're still seeing in the modeling, it's not direct, the, the interpretation is not straightforward. And it's still being challenging to find, to see this, this herbal because we have a low um, SNR compared with surface waste, for example. We have some source ringing, so we see here, because it's a moving source. When we cross-correlate, we want to just Create some some spurious due to this um, to the moving source. Mm, the body waves are not visible at short distance or at really long distance, so that also decreases the quantity of data that we have. So it's a work on, on progress. And second one, the second perspective in this case is that we have some refracted surface wave that could be used. Here we have the three examples of the location, but we need 
further investigation because we have to know if that's, this is due to the lithologies and to do some geological structures of to the topography of the region. However, we observed the same arrival in the synthetic data that we did in Marathon, so can expect that could be used. Because I have a bit of time, I'm going to talk really fast about the second case, which is monitoring. So what I just showed you why we should study trends in seismology, because they are persistent, they are really powerful sources of noise, they are really well located, that help us to localize the trends, and we can extract useful information that we see for, mar for this marathon case, that we can extract better information that by cross blindly cross-correlating. Um, and that it provides us an alternative uh, way to imagine and also to do monitoring. So I'm going to explain really fast what is the monitoring. So by applying the same method, that is the cross-correlation, if we cross-correlate everyday records and seismic records, and we compare the difference between each day, the difference of the aerials, that can be translated as a difference of the medium, the difference of the velocity in the medium, that could be due to some physical change. And this is a technique that has been used to, to monitor different uh, structural in her as faults. And what I'm going to show you now is how we can use trend signals to apply this technique for monitoring the, the San Jacinto Fall. So in, in San Jacinto, in the fall, we have one of the most active uh, seismic areas in, in California. And what, what we see is that we have a uh, a gap of seismology in what we call in ANSA region. And according to paleoseismology studies, the recurrent time of earthquakes in the region is um, 254 years. And the last earthquake was 260 years ago. That means that we can be really close to, to an event. So it's really interesting to, to monitor these these regions and I'm going to present really fast the results of some people in my my team here in Grenoble that use train signals also to monitor San Jacinto Fall. So what is really good to use San Jacinto uh, to use train signals because they are high frequency as I just showed you before and when we have high frequency and when we have body waves we can have a high sensitivity to the strain transient, and we are also less affected by the the effects generated in the near surface. So, for example, we have the train here, going to generate some energy that comes to the first sensors, that travel then to the second one, and if we have sensor in each side of the um, fall, we're going to start we can monitor what is happening here. And the first studies uh, show that by doing some 
using only train signals, we can retrieve a P wave, this P wave that travel here. And then, and then what we can do is that we can monitor, so we can see how that change every day, how these signals change in time, not every day, but in time. So what we do it was we apply the same the same method once again here, only cross-correlation train signals, and we can see that if we have an array here and one uh, sensor here, we can retrieve this P wave. We can see the move out. In. But the problem with the arrays is that uh, they are temporary arrays, and if we want to move forward to do long-term monitoring, uh, what we need is to use single stations, and is what it was done. We use single stations to monitor this fall, and we monitor ten using ten uh, years of continuous data by only cross-correlating train signals, and they we going to do the identify the phase of the signal, the P wave, want to do some quality control on this uh, cross-correlation. And then if we do that for the 10 years, we can measure the the time variation of the arrivals for each cross-correlation. And what is once done here between these two stations. Uh, what we have in red is the time difference. Uh, computed by um, stacking one week of day of cross correlation and we smooth with two two months and what we see is that we have a really strong uh, increase in 2014 that lasts for two months and that it was a big characteristic so what we did is we that we applied for all the stations in the region. And what we see that were some regions when we have this velocity decrease and some regions when we have a velocity increase. This is an DT, so velocity is the, is the inverse. So we see these velocity variations for several sensors. And for some of them, we have velocity decrease and the other one velocity increase. So we search for an um, explanation of this uh, of this variation, and we and to explain this variation, we suppose that we were in a in a sleep. It was a sleep in the fault that going to generate this uh, this deformation in all the volume. So what we did is that we assume uh, a magnitude of strength that correspond to a certain magnitude of velocity. Um, so we convert this strength 3D model into a 3D change velocity model uh, that in which we could integrate these velocity variations. Um, and what we, we obtain by doing this synthetic uh, uh, data is that velocity change for these station pairs were quite similar to what we what we actually um, me measure. 
Um, if we variate this, this, this parameter of all the parameter of this sleep, we could fit the data really close. So we, our observations here, we have the parameter of the, of the dislocation. So what we suppose that it was detected with this variation of velocities, uh, uh, say, sleep near to, to, to this region. So what we can, Keep in mind here is that by using train signals, we could extract body waves that can also help us to, to detect um, events that weren't possible to detect uh, by using other, other approaches. Um, and so what I'm, I'm going to conclude with that by saying that what we see in both cases either in marathon case or for San Jacinto Fall, is that this, this idea to use these train signals give us some more some opportunities to explore in a different way the, the data, especially when we don't have source specific sources. So here we have a map of uh, the railways, the main railways in, in North America, and this, these lines uh, represent the detection uh, distance that we impose to 50 kilometers, but this is depending of of the of the soil, depending of the case. And what is important to keep here in mind, and is that there are a lot of regions, like for example in Oklahoma and other regions, when we don't have a lot of seismic sources. Sometimes we are also far from for example, from the sea, from coast, and train signals provide us an alternative uh, way to, to use seismic interferometry and an alternative source to have high frequency energy for different purposes um, with really low cost because trains are just passing, we can just use it. And with techniques that and we can use techniques that we already know as the econo tomography, as DV over V techniques that were used in other, in the standard seismic, nice cross correlation. And just to finish all these studies, give us the opportunity to, to, to show that using train signal is, is possible for imaging and monitoring application, we could quantifies the, um, the pro and the cons from our our approach. So we saw that by using TransSignal, we have a better quality, we have a better source characterization, we have high frequency signals that will be really important in some cases. Then the big problem is that we have a poof coverage because we are really depending on the localization of the, of the trains, of the railroad, and we can only use it in the regions near to the um, to the railroad. However, we saw just in the figure before that we have a lot of places where we can be used in North America, but it's also the case in, in the rest of the world, because it's also possible to use passenger trains. Here I show, show you two examples of uh, for freight trains, because they are more they are massive, more massive, so they are really energetic. But for passenger trains still being possible to to use this workflow, and especially for other kind of application, 
uh, environmental and engineering studies, for example. And in a more general way, the workflow explained here was only applied for trends in the two cases, but we can go forward and also apply it for several sources of noise. Uh, natural sources like sur surf break or even tectonic or volcanic tremors or cultural noise, uh, scar, stroke traffic, wind firms can be applied several sources of noise. So it's an open opportunity to, to see what we have around and what we can use to um, as an opportune source. That is all. Thank you. Wow, thanks so much, Laura. That was an amazing talk. Um, if anyone has any questions, I'm sure there will be questions. We can um, either take them in the uh, chat or raise your hand. Um, Ellen has a really long. Uh, so, Alan Young is asking um, I wonder what are your remarks? Uh, about the use of virtual sources to study the limitations about the diffuse field concept as promoted by Sanchez, Sesma, and all. Um, so he's asking about virtual sources and diffuse field concept. Um, I don't know, Alan, if you want to uh, ask so, that Sorry, can, can you repeat the, the, the end of the... It wasn't just good. Um, maybe, Alan, if you... Yeah, that's that's easier. Yeah, um, uh, Laura, really, really good talk. Um, thank you for this. I've, I've been aware of the papers that come out uh, in the last couple of years about using virtual sources. Um, my question to you is um, the diffuse fuel concept that has been promoted in the last 10 years by Sanchez, Sesma, Kawase, and in particular, with Kawase for the use of horizontal to vertical spectral ratio. Now, that, that particular method has also been, you know, highly uh, developed and promoted through Grunewald's as well. So you pr you're probably familiar with that. Um, so the whole basis of the diffuse field concept is that, um, you know, no matter what happens at the end, numerically, Sanchez Sesma uh, is believes that you know the wave field is diffused. And and in this really long <laughs> chat that I put in here as the basis of, of, of what I'm asking you, um, you know, Malargia, Francisco Malargia, and a few years ago looked at 65 stations globally, and he, you know, emphatically do not think the, the, the wave field is diffused. So my question to you, given that, you know, you look at this so much, uh, what are your thoughts about, you know, isotropy? And if you assume that, you know, how, how wrong are you going to be, given that you want to mm -hmm. use virtual sources now, right? So I guess my question, my, 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 my first question was, can we use virtual sources as a way to try to understand the limitations of the diffuse field concept? Yeah, I think that is, um, is totally possible. Then I think that what, I mean, and at least with trend, what happens with 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 trends is that a uh, is I mean, for virtual sources, could be possible, and then the, to have a really diffuse wave uh, feel 
we know that we have to be under several assumptions that is almost never the case. So we are just assuming that we are close close to in, in a general way in passive seismology to to do to do this. I think that what what I try to do by using uh, the trends were to to just don't assume that it was diffuse enough. I mean, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, I'm not assuming that it's, we are in a wave and a diffuse wave uh, field, especially for bo- for high f- uh, frequency waves. Right, and that for right. low frequency waves, we, we're going to be, you know, there are several applications that show that it's possible and they, we are, at least if it's not the case, the assumptions are not that bad. But then we want to go really high frequency and we want to want to see uh, this. I think that we are not anymore in this case. In fact, so to, and it was because of that that we tried to do this, this, the, this method that it was in, not assuming that we have a um, um, diffuse uh, fill, uh, wave fill. Then, I think that we can also assume that we have a cross correlation function and not a green function. And we can still use in virtual sources as virtual sources for cross correlation function and then study the the implication of having a cross correlation function. I mean, maybe even what I just say like that during the presentation, but it was inverting both and taking the green function as a uh, as a green function, uh, uh, cross-correlation function as a cross-correlation function and not as a green function. We can still have information about the, the median of monitoring. We don't, I don't think that we really need to go to the tree, green function. So we, in a way to say, doesn't that matter that much if it's, we are grown, if we know that we are. And we are just using cross correlation function as cross correlation functions. I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> well, well, yeah, I think also uh, obliquely you, you mentioned uh, frequency content, right? Really? So, you know, and, and a big part of what Sanchez says um, defends his, that, that concept is that, uh, you know, eventually scattering in the near surface will diffuse um, the, the wave field. And of course that's a, you know, high frequency. So anyway, uh, thanks again. Really, I, I really enjoy your talk. This is a very nice recap of what you guys have done and, and what you're going to do ahead. Sounds really good. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I guess I have a question. So um, towards the, the monitoring application, um, do, do you know if, if different trains generate different uh, maybe frequencies? And and say like if you're monitoring over time, could um, could be monitoring different types of trains. Say be generating different frequencies. Maybe they're going uh, different speeds, or they have different engines or such. Um, and could that you know change in, in maybe source generation um, have an effect on on your monitoring results? I think that um, especially with um, We'll go for the um, to the slide with the modeling, but what also happens sometimes, like in real life, is that we have 
similar trains that are passing in the same place. Any anyway, we can see in the data that is and we never have this perfect um, spectral lines and we have this velocity variation. So to answer your question, it's like yes and no. For the first frequencies, depending on the, the uh, length of the wagon, so it's going to depend of the trend itself. But for the second case, it's really depending on, on the sleeper distribution. And, and because the sleepers are really, really in a specific position, they are a bit of uh, really a small anomalies, it's going to mainly depend on the velocity that are also controlled by, by the low. Because we really went deep in all these trends, uh, um, lows, and we realized that it was, um, in some, in some parts of the railroad, we're going to have some limitation of the speed as in a highway. So you can differentiate it, yes, but not that much because you have similar of them because not one frequency is depending of the, of the um, train, but not the other one. And at the end, you're going to have, in general, you're going to have different velocities, so you you won't see all the differences. Uh, the, you're going to have all the harmonics of the um, all the frequencies. So at the end, going to be also hard to differentiate because if it's in the pairs of the second harmonic of the frequency, uh, but you can extract the velocity of the train. And I know that there are some studies that they call extract the velocity of cars, which uh, by doing but but doing this kind of analysis that is quite funny. <laughs> cool, yeah, that's a, that's super helpful. Um, so we're we're uh, butting up against the end of our hour. Does anyone else have any um extended questions before? I guess we'll go into like a more informal chat uh, if anyone wants to stick around. So, um. Last chance for questions for Laura. Going once, going twice. Okay. Um, so I think uh, Laura said she'll stick around and, and chat informally for a bit. Um, so if anyone wants to, um, again, thank her again if you're going to leave. And then uh, if anyone wants to stick around and just chat, uh, feel free to do that too. Um, Thank you all for coming. It was a it's a great talk. Thank you.